So this morning, we're going to do something. I want to show a short video clip of a, a movie that I, I think will set up the message for today. And it is from the, I, I think this is one of the best movies, uh, animated movies ever, Up. And it is the uh, a four-minute thing. It, it starts at the beginning of the marriage of Carl and Ellie. And it takes it all the way to the end. And that, So I'll just let the movie speak for itself, and then we'll get into the, the message for today. Hope I'm able to read the scripture after that. <laughs> Our passage today is from Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 11. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful? For a man to divorce his wife. He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is God's word for his people today. So I want to start by um, kind of answering a, a uh, age-old question. And so, so ladies, I want to ask you to help the men out. Um, if someone happened to forget the particular day we're in and they had to make an emergency thing, which would you rather have? Flowers or chocolates? Okay, can we get to so say, who wants flowers? Who would rather have chocolates? Okay. So men, just take note which, which carries more weight. Um, it is Valentine's Day. Does Market 32 carry flowers, by the way? Okay, okay just checking. Um, I realized that it would be on Valentine's Day that I'd be facing a passage about divorce. And I'm like, should I switch the weeks? Should I, you know, jump ahead and then come back to this on another day? And I really did think about that. Um, and a couple things. One is I, I realized one of my callings is preach the word in season and out of season. And we we. We as God's people, we, we sit under the theory of God's word and we hear what it says, even if sometimes it doesn't feel like it's the right season. God has something to say to us. And I trust that he, he engineered the, the way that the, the passages fell in this series. But I also think even more than that, Valentine's Day, of course, is about 
love. And, you know, right, our world talks a lot about love, but I'm not sure the world knows what love really is. And we follow the one who said, greater love has no one than this, than one would lay down his life for his friends. So we need to hear what Jesus says about love. Man, I should have shown that clip. All right. Give it. Um, and what, as we're going through this passage, what we're going to do is not just look at what Jesus says about divorce, but, but look at why he said it. And in fact, to understand what Jesus is getting at, why he says it the way he does, you have to um, understand God's design in marriage and what marriage is meant to be and could be. So, starting with our passage, Jesus is in the region of Judea. In other words, he's not up north in Galilee where he normally had been most of this time. He's now down closer to Judea, closer to Jerusalem, though it says he's beyond the Jordan, which means he's not quite at Jerusalem, he's, but he's in that, more in that ballpark. And some Pharisees come to test him with a question. And it's a question that was often debated among the Jewish rabbis, and it's simple. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So it's important to note the question that is actually asked. And first of all, you note the one-sidedness of it, that it's is for a man can divorce his wife. It's not, you know, the other way around. And in Jewish culture of that time, women really just didn't have the option of divorcing their husbands, only it was only the man that might have that option. And, and there were two schools of thought, two big schools of thought in that, that in the, among the Jewish rabbis, is one is Shammai. The rabbi Shammai held that a man may only divorce his wife for a serious transgression, um, possibly adultery being what he had in mind. There was another school, the school of Hillel, who allowed divorce for even trivial offenses, such as burning a meal. In other words, if a, man, if a man was offended by what his wife did, he could end it there and then. It was at his, completely at his discretion. So in bringing this question to Jesus, they're actually, I think it's actually a good thing, they're treating him as a rabbi. They're, they're inviting him, Rabbi, which of these two is right? That was a, a way they, they analyzed the law. And Jesus... Does, handles it as a rabbi often would, he puts the question back on them, right? Well, what does the law of Moses say? Don't you love people that answer questions with a question? But, yeah, amen. Us pastors do it all the time. <laughs> and so they say, well, Moses said you can, a man, if he's going to get divorced, must give her a certificate of divorce. And that enables him to divorce his wife. And so, uh, the one commentary, Ben Weatherington, um, commented upon that as, as explaining that. And so, he says, specifically, a bill of divorce was required to be given to the woman to make clear that she was no longer married. And then Jesus seems to suggest that the Mosaic provision was meant to limit a problem, not license a practice that, in essence, goes against God's original intentions for marriage. So, they say... You know, Moses allowed a man to issue a certificate of divorce. Jesus then responds, Moses allowed that 
because he knew your hearts were hard. So there had to be a legal mechanism for divorce, for the protection of the woman especially, that she wasn't just being sent away with nothing. Um, But if you go further back, if you look at God's original intention for marriage, you get a different perspective. And so that's what he does. He then, here's how Jesus ultimately responds. He quotes two passages. He gives one pronouncement, and then he offers a clarification to his disciples when they're alone. So first, passage number one, Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God made them male and female. And he's talking about how marriage is rooted from the very first page of the Bible, from the very beginning of creation. God set up marriage. It's his design and his idea. God came up with this plan. And it involves two different um, aspects, male and female coming together. And that God would take that, that 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 is an essence of what marriage is. Then he quotes from Genesis 2, where it says, A man will leave his father and mother and join himself to his wife, and the two will become one. Marriage is more than just a social arrangement. It's not something we as humans figured out. It is something instead given by God, and it takes two different people and unites them into one. That is, again, God's design for marriage, and it's at the very beginning. Then Jesus issues a pronouncement. Since God is the one doing it, God is the one acting within marriage. It says, what God has joined together, the old King James, what God hath joined. And this line from Mark in traditional wedding uh, vows is, is really like the last thing, and at each wedding I've done, it's the last thing I say um, after, you're, you know, man and wife, before you're allowed to kiss the bride, you say this, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder or separate. So the word for divorce that they're using is the word, it, it literally means in Greek, loose, loose, or make loose from. It also can be used to, to translate or, or translate it as send away or dismiss. It's not a technical word for just divorce. It's about sending away. It's dismissing. It's separating something that was meant to be together. And so the question is that is asked is what are we allowed to do? What is lawful? What can we get away with? And Jesus takes that question and he turns it and says, what has God done? What, what, what is God at? Understand what God's purposes is and you'll get a better perspective. Divorce is to act against God's purposes. And then when they're alone, the disciples ask him about this matter. And, and Jesus gives them what I call a clarification. And I just had a new way to think about this as I studied it, is what Jesus is doing is he's going back to answer the original question. Remember, what was the original question? What is lawful? Where in the law does it say we should not divorce? 
and you know that it says the law gives us a, a, the ability to divorce. So what Jesus does then is he answers that. You know what Bible verse can you cite? Well, when a man looses from, divorces, sends away his wife, and then marries another, that is the breaking of the marriage covenant. That is adultery. And the same, he, he now then it takes both sides of it. It's the same if a woman looses from her husband and marries another. She commits adultery. So it is in the law. That, that's the clarification he's making. And what it does is when you walk away from the spouse, you make permanent the, the broken covenant that, that results. What do we learn about God's design for marriage in the two passages that Jesus points to? In other words, why does God join together a man and a woman? What's he, what's he about? And so first in Genesis 1, I, I see three reasons, three, three things that God is doing when he, he unites a marriage. Number one is the man and woman complement each other. Oh, you look nice today, honey. You know, oh, your tie is, is really, no, no, not compliment. You know, this is barely a word. There's compliment with an I. That's to say something nice. Compliment with an E, two E's. Compliment. It means fit together. A man and wife are made to fit together. Male and female are different. And, and yet they, there's things about each other that when they're, you know, like puzzle pieces, they can join together and be something more. Male and female, it declares in Genesis 1, are created in God's image. So Genesis 1. So God created man, mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This makes clear that both men and women are, are bearers of God's image. And in fact, both sides, both male and female, are needed to bear God's image. One alone can't do it. They're different, but they're made to reflect the character of God. And in marriage, God brings them together in a special way. Second reason we're seeing Genesis 1 for why God joins together a man and woman is each brings strengths and weaknesses into the marriage. So, in Genesis 1, 26, it says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of heaven. And it goes on. Um, male and female together are given dominion, or just simply rule, over creation. Together, they are going to work at, at fulfilling God's purposes and, and oversee the rest of the created world. And both are given that task. Now, after sin takes place in Genesis 3, we see how they start to, instead of working together, compete. Where, the, where Eve is told, uh, your desires will be against his, contrary to his, and he will rule over you. Then they'll start to compete for power. But in the original design, they were made to work together to oversee creation. And so each male and female, man and woman, bring different strengths into the marriage. Um, men, 
what is your wife good at that you are not? Can you answer that question? I, I, I can. My wife is much more intuitive about relationships and wise. In rela- There's very little I, I don't ask her opinion about first. And if we're watching a movie and there's all kinds of like subtle social cues, I have to ask her what's going on. What's, uh, explain this because I, I just, I'm obtuse. So, so she brings the strength of intuitive um, wisdom into the marriage. My strength is historical dates. I could tell you what 1789 or, or 1865 or 1917, why those dates are significant. So that's my contribution. And both, both are important. Oh, oh, and I'm good at killing spiders. I think that's why she keeps me around, actually. So um, each brings strengths or weaknesses into the marriage. Third, together a man and woman can become parents and raise children. The first command they are given, be fruitful and multiply, right? And so the first thing they're told is have kids, spread out, and, and fill this world that I've given you. And so isn't it interesting, God made it necessary for a man and woman to cooperate in order to procreate, right? Like, he could have done it otherwise. There are other, like, plant species that can, can reproduce without, you know, two of them involved. But God made it that a man and a woman have to work together. Now, I know in our technology we're trying to get around that. But God's original design, that's the way he made it. I think he did it that way because part of his design is that kids would have both a father and mother, ideally, in the home so they could see what each gender looks like together. Um, But that's God's original design. Now, mind you, I realize (laughs) that... I, I may have disqualified for myself from ever seeking public office just in the last five minutes. That this is different than what the world says. But I think you look at, see this clearly. This is what is coming out of Genesis 1. And, and now, let's, now let's look into Genesis 2. Continuing, why does God join together a man and woman? Four more reasons. Um, so number four is together they meet each other's need for companionship. Uh, Genesis 2.18, God says, the Lord says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I think I heard someone else say that today already. Um, It's not good for the man to be alone, that we need companionship. I love the scene from that movie clip when they're just sitting there reading, and he slowly puts his hand over, and then she grabs his hand, that even though they're just reading, they're together. That, that sense of companionship. And, and, oh, this last week I got a call from um, uh, an agency. One man from my previous church he had, had got COVID and died. And he was someone I, who had no, no contacts. And I had become his emergency contact. And so she had to inform me um, of that, that state. And and it's, I mean, R- Robbie was a, a good guy, but he had gotten divorced and spent his latter years alone. Um, and ultimately, in the hospital, he, he died alone. Now, Robbie knew Jesus and loved the Lord and did his best to follow the Lord. So I know he was not alone. There was one with him. 
But still, I believe that, that that's one of the, the things with, with divorce is it, it, it undoes that need for companionship that we have. Reason number five. They can face the difficulties of life in this world together. Um, God says, I will make a, suitor, a helper suitable for the man. Now, the word helper in, in the language does not convey secondary status. In fact, it's one who has the strength to, to be of help. They're, the same word is used when it says, God is my help, help and my strength. So... It's not like, oh, she's underneath. They're, they're together. This will be a, a suitable helper. And again, in that movie clip, how, like, life just hits you, right? The tire blows, the uh, broken arm, you know, each time they have to break that, that, the money they're saving for their big trip. And, and we need people that when, when things fall apart, we're not facing them. How much difference does it make to have someone with you when, when those things happen? Ecclesiastes 4 says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? It's not just about marriage, but certainly points to, to marriage. And that last line also points to the next one, is the physical relationship behind marriage. Genesis 2 emphasizes that the two become one flesh. In marriage, a husband and wife can have a unique, intimate marriage. Now, on one level, that is talking about sex, right? You know, physical intercourse is part of the story, and it's there. It's talking about that in Genesis 2. That is part of God's design as well. God made it so that within a covenant relationship where you've each committed to be together for, for until death do you part, that you can have that kind of physical intimacy. Someone who knows you, who, who knows you and sees you, sees your flaws, it's no accident, says they were naked together and were not ashamed. You make yourself vulnerable in, in marriage and, and in that kind of relationship. And so to have that, that promise, that covenant promise of I will be with you to the end of days is, is huge. God chose to root physical intercourse in a marriage relationship that is held together in a covenant bond so that we could safely reveal who we are to, to the other person. And then the seventh point of reason, what God is doing in marriage, and this is in many ways the most awesome of all, marriage gives a picture of the covenant relationship between God and his people. Genesis 2 says, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And that's that idea of making a covenant that you would live out together for the rest of your lives in this relationship is, is one, it's one way to, to give a picture of the kind of relationship God wants to have with his people. God has made a covenant, offered a covenant relationship 
to those who would receive it. Not just, well, if you are good enough, I'll let you in. That's not what God does. God says, if you trust me and you come into relationship with me, I will be with you always to the very end of the age, even when you fall short and screw up. God has made that kind of covenant with us. And so marriage, even when we are sinners within marriage, and we are, we're all broken, we all mess up, and no marriage looks perfect. Even when it's a flawed and broken marriage at times, when we stick together, God can use that to highlight the covenant that he has made with people. Read Ephesians 5. Paul says that's the mystery that we, we see um, that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And that's talking about Christ and the church, not just real marriage. So, you may say, well, that's all fine and good, but, but that's not what we see happening in our world right now. I think God has given the gift of marriage um, to, to people, not just to Christians, to, to the whole world. This is before, you know, anything else. So it's given as a creation gift to all people that would receive it. But man, do we see brokenness. And we know that, that our hearts were hard. And because of sin, um, so often marriages do end. The divorce stats are crazy. And I, I think in my younger days, I, I want to say I had a, a judgmental is not the right word, but I just had a, you know, if you decide hard enough, you, you can never get divorced. And I, the number of good Christian friends I have that got married at the same time or so that me and my wife did that are now divorced astonishes me. And... I know that, that, that marriage is difficult and maybe the world makes it even more difficult. And I know that we're all sinners and we all fall short. So it's, it's vital that even as we lift up these truths that we don't put ourselves in the, well, you know, uh, um, arrogant attitude about it because this is a gift from God. We have not lived up for the purposes of marriage. In fact, if you look at, the marriage in the Bible, it doesn't look too pretty there sometimes. How much, uh, you know, you had men take multiple wives, lots of adultery. You, had, you end up having Solomon having a thousand wives. You know, that, that's just ridiculous. And we see the, the play of how sin within this world does damage to marriage. And it demonstrates what Jesus said. Moses allowed divorce because he knew your hearts were hard. Is it lawful? Yes. There had to be some legal allowance for divorce. But at the same time, God says in Malachi 2, says, I hate divorce. Why? Why does he hate it? You say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your marriage companion and your wife by covenant. That you made this covenant and now in your older years you, you, you deal treacherously with your wife by leaving her. God sees the damage that is done in people's lives through the divorce and he wants so much better for us. And so I, I do want you to know if you've been affected by divorce, hurt by divorce, 
story, know God's grace and forgiveness is real. And God mourns with you over the pain that you've gone through. A few things. One is, is there ever a time for divorce? Yes. In fact, there's, there's three I'll outline. Um, and they all are times when the covenant of marriage has already been broken. And the first is simply adultery. If one partner has committed adultery, then the covenant of marriage has been broken. And in that case, the other is justified in leaving the relationship, legally ending, ending what has already been broken. Now, they can, but they don't have to. There is the option to seek forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration in those cases. And God can and has restored marriages where adultery is played in it. And he can do that so that it is an option. But it also means the marriage has been broken and, and you're justified in legally leaving the marriage. A second case is abuse. Where there is physical abuse, abuse that does real damage to the spouse, then again, the covenant has been broken. And the spouse is justified in leaving the marriage. The covenant vows we make include the idea to protect, hold dear, to cherish. And if one partner is abusing, that, is abusing the other, then they have broken covenant with them. God does not call women to stay in a home where she and the kids are being abused. And I've encountered people, women included, who thought that, that God was telling them that they had to stay, despite the bruises. The third um, justification for divorce is abandonment. Sometimes one partner makes the choice to leave. No one is ever blameless in divorce. You know, there, there's because we're because no one is ever blameless in anything we do, right? We all are flawed, sinful people, and, and that's going to happen in marriage. Sometimes one spouse decides they're not going to, they're going to leave, and, and they may give reasons why the other justified because the other's done wrong, but they're making the choice to leave the marriage. And if the other, sometimes they're just left, and they're abandoned, and it's not, they're not at fault in what has taken place. There's four other things I want to talk about to clarify. And it's how, it really, how does the church respond to divorce within our culture? And the first thing we need to make clear is there is forgiveness after divorce. God can and will forgive the sin for those who own up to their part of it and, re and repent. Now, repentance may not mean going back to the original marriage. In fact, if you go to Deuteronomy 24, the passage that, that they refer to, that's one thing that is forbidden. You can't divorce, remarry, and then divorce again and go back to the original partner. If there's one thing that's clearly forbidden in the law, it's that. God does not want people to use that as a game to get around things. So because of that, sometimes divorce is treated as the unforgivable sin because you can't just go back to the original spouse. But that doesn't mean that 
divorce is unforgivable. And I'm, I'm sure, I knew this going in, that there's some here who would have a divorce in the past, and you found how God held on to you even as you struggled through it, and how maybe God brought you to a second marriage and a new start, and you found God's blessing in that. And praise be to God, God can do that. Um, remarriage, a new start is not, forgiven, not forbidden because forgiveness can happen. Another thing, how does the church respond? I think this highlights the importance of church family. Even as we uphold a high view of marriage, we also have to bear witness to a God is more forgiving and gracious than we can believe. And, and when, when someone struggles in these situations, we are called to surround them with love and grace. The church is meant to be a place of recovery and healing for broken and hurting people. And, and we just need to acknowledge we've all been broken by some sin or another. And, and then in the church, part of the way we, we bring healing is we are to each other the mothers and brothers and sisters that we need. When, when, when we are left alone in the church, we're not alone. Because God gives us those other relationships, those extended relationships that support us. A third thing, when we think about the church's response, we need to realize not all are called to marriage. In fact, some instead are called to singleness for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus spoke about that, um, but the Apostle Paul in the letters says it even more clearly. Paul talks about how who, Paul himself, who was not married, who had the freedom to focus on the work of the kingdom because he was not married. He says, it would be better if all of you were like me. Like, that, that's the better option because you're not focused on how you have to please a spouse. You're able to fully focus on pleasing God. And, and so in the church, we need to honor those who are able to serve God in, their, in, in unique ways because of their singleness and, make sure, and know that they have an important place in God's economy. And so those, that is something that has to be honored. And the last thing I just lift up is we are called to hold a high view of marriage, meaning that marriage is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman that lasts our entire life. We're called to hold on to that, and yet at the same time, um, and, and lift that, that before the Lord. I think people need to know, I think our world is confused about sex and love and romance, and they confuse love with, with sexual chemistry. And so as lifting up a high view of marriage in this covenant relationship, we're called to, to teach it, but also help encourage and strengthen marriages within the church, to, to engage people and, and find ways to build up marriages as best we can. Because I'm convinced that when it works, it is a, a beautiful thing. So when I was somewhat newly married, I think Katie was a baby, I was in... Um, associate pastor at a church, really the youth pastor, and there was an older retired pastor in the congregation, Arnold Mextroth. And so I got to know him for various reasons, but because he was a pastor, I sort of saw myself in the future, you know, would this be me? So I, I guess I related thinking about him a little bit, and his his wife had dementia and, and was dying, and um, he couldn't drive. And so I drove him down to the hospital to visit her. 
And I remember, you know, I went in the room with him at first, and I just watched how tenderly he, he went and held her hand and talked to her. And then I excused myself to, to give him some privacy. And I just remember having that thought. Will that one day be me? Beside the wife, or beside the bed of my wife? Or will more likely she be the one beside my bed as I, I lay dying? And that covenant relationship to, to stay faithful to one another to the end is a beautiful thing. And it points people to the goodness and love of God. That's what we need to have is a, a high view of marriage that, that honors that. So to close, just I ask you, my friends, how, what does it mean for the church to hold a high view of marriage? And how can we encourage and support people in building those kind of marriages, especially younger, newly married couples? What can we do to strengthen them? That's something the church needs to know. And then lastly, how can we hold on to that high view and yet be sure to extend grace to those who've gone through a divorce and make sure they know they have a place within the body of Christ? Let me pray. Father, I, I thank you for your word and how you speak to us, even on difficult topics. I pray for the marriages in this church. I pray that you would strengthen them and that they would be encouraged to, to, to grow together as a couple. I pray for those who've been damaged and hurt by divorce in whatever way. Lord, may you bring healing into their inner beings. May you enmesh them in the body of Christ so that here they would find mothers and brothers and sisters to, to, to surround them and love them. Lord, we ask for your grace to be with us in all things. Amen.